0: as we begin this third week of Advent, I'm going to ask you just to explore with me um, something kind of unique. It it may not be something I I find it interesting, but I don't know if you consider the names of cities very often. You know, there's all all sorts of cities with all sorts of names. We wonder what they mean. Some of them are very obvious. I, I don't know if you know this. I was doing some research and I found out, do you know there's a city in Oregon named Boring? I live in Boring. That is not a good place to live, is it? Did you know there's a city in my or in Arizona named Why, and a city in Mississippi named Why Not? You can go from Why in Arizona to Why Not in Mississippi. In Tennessee, there's a city in romance ability named Sweet Lips. There is Sweet Lips. It's a city name. Sadly, in New York, there's a city named Lonelyville. It doesn't always work the way we want it to, does it? I mean, city names are weird and interesting, aren't they? It was crazy as I looked at it. I don't know why, but there's a city in Texas named Oatmeal. <laughs> of all the things you could name a city, why of all the foods, Oatmeal? Maybe lobster, maybe steak. Oatmeal. It's named Oatmeal, literally. There's one in Massachusetts named Sandwich. I didn't bother looking as to why. It's just fascinating to me. There is actually a city in one of the states. It's uh, it's in Oklahoma named Happyland. I live in Happyland, and we all know, now it's not the opposite per se, think of heaven. We actually live in Michigan. You know, there's a city in Michigan that is hell. I live in hell. <laughs> Tell me that joke doesn't go dead after a while, but how weird is that? I mean, city names are crazy, aren't they? Now, you may not realize it, but even in our own area, we have history that brings about names of cities. I didn't explore all these other ones, and I don't really, it'd be a whole nother study in itself. Did you know in our particular area, in the Tri-Cities here, at one point in time, it was called Gabagwache. That was the area that we lived just south of us over by the lake. Literally means big mouth. Now, fortunately, I don't think it meant there was a big mouth person there, this was given by the Potawatomi Native Americans, the Indians there. And it was given because the Grand River comes in as a big mouth out into, the, into Lake Michigan. So it was named specifically for that. In fact, you may not realize it, but our entire area, its history, really was through felt trading. And what happened were the, the French began to, to come into this area, all through it, alongside of the Native Americans, and build up these great felt industry. They were just trading furs back and forth. Pretty soon after that, lumber became a larger part of the community in the area all around us. Everywhere we go, it's the case. In fact, Spring Lake, the city we're in, was originally called Mill Point because there was a mill here and it was on a point and ultimately became Spring Lake. There's a whole nother story to that. Did you know, though, just beyond our little area, if we go around even to where we have campuses, there was a man named Benjamin Cooper, he bought up 640 acres east of us, got it for lumber usage, and ultimately today that city is called Coopersville. It makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Just north of us, there was a city called Muskeguan, and it was it was, again, this was Ottawa Native Americans, but they named it because it was a marshy water there. Fascinating just to see in our own history, and by the way, It's interesting because we have a campus here in Spring Lake. We have one in Coopersville in a rural area and Muskegon, an urban center more. But we all have a similar history and that we all grew up around fur trading and we all, this area grows out of lumber. Now, each of the cities chose different futures from that. This area, Grand Haven, became much more resort-like. Coopersville became farmland and Muskegon became this area of industry. And we tend to, when we're in cities, think of how we're different. Now, what we share in common, don't we? But as we know, every city has a story and every city is full of people that matter to God and that his story matters. Well, in the Advent season, we're looking at a particular city, an area, the place where Jesus is actually born. Now, we're in the third week of Advent. I want to go back a little bit to recap, but let me use the passage to get us there that we've been in for this series of Advent. We're in Matthew chapter 2. There are four accounts of, of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Two of them have this early part of his life and Matthew is one of them. And so we began here a couple of weeks ago after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. Now we stopped there in week one and we looked at this reality that everything centered around Herod being king, around his kingship. And we wrestled with our own desires to be kings and queens. And yet when Jesus came, it was to be the king that we would be his. We would surrender to him. That's what we looked at in week one is that battle. Now, last week, Thad walked us through where this went on. The Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. They asked, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, we, Thad looked at us with this last week, and one of the pictures we got is how when Jesus is born, the entire world responds. Magi come from a whole other part of the world because the birth and the coming of Jesus is a globally impacting draw. And Thad talked to us about to truly understand Jesus, we have to expand our view to see how he's a global God and all that he's doing and wants to do and how we engage that way. That's where we've been. Now we're gonna continue on. We know that Harold, Her, Harold Her, I don't know who Harold is, but Herod's troubled. <laughs> Harold is Herod's ugly brother, I guess, I don't know. Herod was disturbed. We, know, we knew this from week one. If you want to hear more, you can go back. But Matthew continues on. Because Herod's troubled, he's asking, though it tells us already, he doesn't know where Messiah is to be born. So he calls together the chief priests and the teachers of the law, those who understand all these prophecies that had come centuries before. And he asked them where Messiah was to be born. And they answer, in Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. Now Bethlehem now becomes this city that should matter to us. Now let me just give you some pictures of Bethlehem because it has a rich, beautiful history. Bethlehem is the very city which Rachel, who's one of the matriarchs of our faith, passes away. It's a known city because their family lived there and she dies there. It's kind of one of the first events where she's buried. We know the city has significance. You fast forward a bit through the scriptures, through history, and there's a story of a woman named Ruth. Ruth lives in a place called Moab. She's from there. She marries into a family that is of Jewish life and her husband dies, as does her brother-in-law, her husband's brother, and she and her Sister-in-law and her mother-in-law are left without any men and left destitute without a future. Her mother-in-law says, I'm gonna go back to Israel. You ladies stay here. You can find another way of life. And Ruth says, no, no, I'm coming with you. And where Ruth ends up is in a place where she meets a man named Boaz who will take her in and she will become the great-grandmother of David. Guess where she went? It's not hard. I'm not tricking you. Bethlehem, that's where she ends up. You see, the city's significant again. By the way, Bethlehem's a no small city. It's not a big deal. Something amazing happens. David will actually be anointed there by a prophet who will come when no one else sees him as one that should be anointed. He's actually called out of the fields and God says, or the prophet says, God looks at the heart, not the outward appearance because David does not look the part of king, but he's anointed in Bethlehem where he's born. I want you to just understand Bethlehem has a rich history. There's something powerful now about it. And now Matthew's gonna go on to explain even further why this city matters. He says, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now this is a prophecy he's quoting. We're gonna go there in just a minute. And I want you to pay attention to a couple things. One is it doesn't actually, you'll see when we get to Micah, which is where it's from, he doesn't say you are by no means least. It speaks a little differently. So Matthew's giving explanation of what this means. But what you should see from it is it's a surprise to them that it's Bethlehem. The prophecy is a surprise. Now, in case you don't know it, in the time that Jesus is going to be born, Israel has a very particular view of what holiness is and where it is. In the nation of Israel, it's considered to be in that land is more holy than the rest of the earth. In other words, that area is more sacred than any other. Now it keeps moving into closer proximity. The closer you get to Jerusalem, the holier it gets. When you get right to Jerusalem, that is the holiest city. When you get inside Jerusalem to a place called the temple where God's presence was to dwell, that's even closer when you get inside to these different courts, it kind of has different barriers as you get closer to what's called the Holy of Holies, holier, holier, and it's called the Holy of Holies because it is the holiest place on earth. Whew. So you're God, Jerusalem's the holiest place, and the temple in that place is the Holy of Holies. Where would you think Messiah should be born? Jerusalem, right? So I want you to understand this whole idea before we even get to the prophecy. It's kind of like God went, you, you look at God and you go, did you forget to put your glasses on? Cause he's off by about nine miles. You're like, I know you're God, but maybe you just missed the target a little bit. Now we know that's not true, but we should ask ourselves why? Why is it Bethlehem and not Jerusalem? Micah gives more explanation to this. And I think gives us something to consider today. This is the actual passage that Matthew's speaking about. It says, they will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. This is the the verse before the quote. Now, what you should know about this is striking a ruler on the cheek is the most humiliating act. It is an image of complete humiliation of that ruler. In other words, Israel will be taken down to the lowest of the low. That's the picture where they're at. Now, what would you want to do if you were at a low place? You'd want to bring in the big guns and the big power to take it back, right? Here's the prophecy. But you, Bethlehem of Prathoth, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Looking all the way back, one would come through David's line. It's this word we want to pay attention to today. Small. I know it's a simple thing and it's simple to pay attention to, but it's one I think we can walk past profoundly and sadly and miss something beautiful in it. The word Hebrew, this Hebrew word for small can literally mean multiple things and you'll see it translated different ways. It can be small, it can be lowly, it can be the smallest, it can be a young kid, it can be the youngest, it can be the least. In other words, it is really small small insignificant, unprepared, immature, weak. Are you getting a picture? That there's something about this. And what I wanna challenge us with today, I I don't think it'll shock us. Okay, Jesus came in a small way, but I think what we wanna wrestle with today is, we think of Jesus doing this as a means to an end. He unfortunately came in lowliness and smallness so that he could be great and we could be great. So how do we view those things that are small and lowly? Negatively, they're a means to an end. Let me just pose something differently for you. What if smallness is the way of Jesus? Not as an antidote, what if it's its actual way of God? I hope that messes with you because it's messing with me right now. Let me take you through this as a, as a larger example. This is what it says in Micah, though you are small. I I just want to give you some contrasting to consider our own lives a bit for a minute. Small versus big, which do we prefer? What do we do? Don't we work hard so that we'll be lifted up and applauded? Don't we want things to be bigger and better? And like I said, small is a means to an end. It's not an actual result we look for on its own. Let me keep going. How about weak versus powerful? Don't we wanna power up to get where we wanna go? Don't we wanna find power that will take over and dominate that which we don't desire and don't want? You realize the way of Jesus is not that way, don't you? That's the whole reason Israel was so frustrated. They wanted him to take charge. What if weakness is actually the most powerful avenue to true power? and power itself is a substitute. I mean, come on, you and I, we live in the richest time in history in the richest area of the world. We have more power than anyone in all of history, don't we? Is it possible this could be something that we need shaking up on? I'm just gonna give you some more, just to consider more words that'll help us with this. How about lowly versus lofty? When's the last time you thought, you know, I am working hard at work so that no one will notice me? What do we work for? We work for promotion. We work for advancement. We work to be lifted up, don't we? Can you imagine if we worked to be unseen and unnoticed? We always want to be applauded. We always want to be moved ahead. How about meek versus bold? When's the last time someone told you, if it is to be, it's up to me? Hey, if you're gonna create, you need to make your future. Now I'm not trying to say we can't work hard, but what's our motive? What was the motive of Jesus? What was the way of Jesus? Why Bethlehem? Why someplace that's small and insignificant right next to the center of the earth for all Israelite? Why not there? How about invisible versus flashy? Unless you're an extreme introvert, many of you want to be noticed, don't you? And and I'm not saying the introverts are more holy, though you may take it that way. We just probably want our needs met a different way, but it still wants to be elevated. Who wants to go invisible and unnoticed? How about undesirable versus fascinating? Did you know in Isaiah 53, the prophecy, one of the major ones about the coming of Messiah, it actually says, we won't even notice him in his appearance. He's not one that people wanna see, he's one that people hide their faces from. How do we always picture Jesus? He's the man, isn't he? Good looking, strapping, he's gonna win it for God. He's gonna be flashy, awesome, and amazing, and we're all gonna wanna be around him. What if that's not the way of Jesus? What if it actually contradicts the way we think? Just finally, how about unknown versus celebrated? This is the part that, that's hit me, at least personally. Uh, we live in a highlight real world, don't we? We are always looking for the highlights. And if we don't have them, we do manufacture them, by the way. I think we work hard to get to the highlights. I think God's not interested in them. I think he's interested in the places that are unseen. I think he's wired us to really find peace in the small and the lowly and the weak and the meek and the invisible and the unnoticed. I wonder this season if we need to hear something different than we've been hearing all along. Could it be that Jesus brings his life in the small and the weak and the lowly and the meek, in the invisible and the undesirable and the unknown? Could it be that Jesus didn't come as a means to an end this way, but to tell us there's something greater to be found in the small and the weak and the lowly and the meek? That there's something to be found in the invisible and the undesirable and the unknown. I have to tell you, this, this messes with me. I mean, it's a weird thing. I, I will tell you, being a pastor and having a, a, a life that every week, you know, that I perform for you. And I don't mean that like I want to perform, but you're as good as your last Sunday. You do know that, don't you? Great service, hope it goes well next week, good luck. it was okay, I liked one a couple of weeks ago. I could start building my life around what happens here. Jesus is more interested in the small, and the weak, and the lowly, and the meek. What if Jesus' birth is not an avenue to an end, but a very story of how we're to live differently? What if Jesus wants to meet us in places we don't go? What if, in fact, this is so true that maybe you're not finding him because you're looking in the wrong place? What if we're looking for Jesus to do something dramatic and powerful and awe us so we can be elevated and flashy and noticed and important? And Jesus says, oh no, no, I'm the God of the small and the weak the lowly and the meek. Oh, I'm the God who meets people where they're invisible and undesirable and unknown. That's who I am. What if God wants to meet us in a different place in this season as we enter Advent? And not just in this season, even moving forward. Do you know it's crazy? So I'll just use me as an example. Obviously my professional and my public life is primarily here on these days. Do you think God cares more about how this goes? or what goes on when I'm sitting alone with him if I even make time to sit alone with him, and what goes on in the rest of my life in the small, in the weak, in the lowly, and the meek. I think that's where God cares. I think this is something that should flow out of that, but this matters more. So I started asking that question for us in this season. How many of you are overly busy right now? It's Christmas, I mean, we, most of us are. How many of you are lying? and you're saying you're not. I listen to people, and and I'm the same way. We build our lives around all the things going on. How many of us long for Christmas to be this great, special occasion when all the stops are pulled out and everybody has a great experience? How many of us might worry more about the gifts under the tree and the things we got each other and the meal that we have and the events that go on than the small and the weak and the lowly and the meek of our lives? What if what God cares about and the places we'll find him is not in the greatness of the events that go on, but in those places we might not be looking? What if the best thing God wants to give you is simply sitting with him alone, learning to discover his presence, and not all that you'll do outside of that? What if in the midst of that, what God wants to do in our lives is different? What if you work at a place where your boss does something that's so difficult and so unnerving to you that you want to move ahead and it breaks you down? And what you do is somehow you find the forgiveness of Christ in that moment and you continue to follow and work under them in a godly way. And Jesus says, guess what? You found me here. You wanted promotion. And what you got was my presence and your forgiveness. What if that's better? I think of our students, you know, our kids as we raise them, we want them to achieve great things. And I'm not saying those aren't great ideas. But what if instead of their greatest study and achievement or their greatest accolades, it's sitting in a lunchroom befriending another kid who's alone and a mess? What if it's how they live with integrity when no one else is? It's how they're living and crying out to God in their loneliness and brokenness. And Jesus says, I'm here in the small and the weak and the lowly and the meek and the invisible and the unnoticeable and the unknown. What if it's different than we think it is? What if we stop seeing those things as a means to an end to get to the places we want and we actually start loving the things that happen in day-to-day life? Do you think Jesus wants to meet you when you're clean in your house? He could. Do you think Jesus wants to meet you when you're actually caring for the people around you? Oh, you bet he does. Do you think he wants to meet you when you live with integrity and in the relationships you have, whether you're married or you're single or you're divorced, whether you're living alone, whether you're raising kids on your own, whether you've sat and not had other relationships, that battle where no one sees, that's where Jesus shows up. You get it, don't you? What if we have this thing wrong? We're so busy getting to seen and known and advanced and lifted up. And Jesus, no, no, no. I'll meet you in the small, in the weak, in the lowly, in the meek. I wonder not just in Christmas how that might change. I wonder what it might do having us move forward. What would change in our values if we said the things that aren't seen are what Jesus cares about? The things that aren't seen are the places he reveals himself. No one may know, but somehow finding him was better than everyone knowing something that didn't matter. This messes me up. I'm hoping it messes you up too, in a good way. I just want to pray for us. I want to pray that somehow God will turn our attention, that we might start seeing Jesus in places we haven't been looking, that we might look at our opportunities differently, that we might see Bethlehem in a way we haven't seen it before. I think God wants to meet us. I think He wants to do something different in us. Let me let me just give you a picture of this, uh, even from the life of the church, because there's things we do to advance ourselves, and when we do something that doesn't, it doesn't make sense. But you find God in different ways. Ten years ago, uh, 2009, we were behind on budget, which is very common this time of year. But I can just tell you, when you're leading the church, you never feel good about that. Like, oh no, it'll be fine. And Christmas often is a time that things get, people do a lot of year-end giving, and we had a very clear leading. We were supposed to give away Christmas Eve offering. Now, in case you don't know, Christmas Eve is a major part of what helps us. That was not a strategically good idea, and it and you could tell lots of things. How's that going to help what God wants to do? How's that going to help us? Ten years ago, we started doing this. You have given in those ten years seven hundred and forty thousand dollars to things locally, regionally, and globally. You should cheer it on, it's amazing. Now we don't do that because we think then we'll get provided for. We do it because we think Jesus shows up in the small and the weak and the lowly and the meek. I'm gonna, I'll ask you, will you show up with us on that? I want you to pray now. And it scares me to death. I'd like to tell you, make sure you do this stuff for us too. I don't know what happened with that, but I know that we're supposed to be met in those places. I just know we're supposed to. This year, when we get to this part, I kind of think of it as Bethlehem because it's a little bit away from us. We go and do things regionally. This year, that portion of our offering will go specifically, very specifically, to help out Fresh Coast Alliance, which is a post-prison uh, uh, ministry. They both, there's housing through this ministry there's recovery ministries there's job training it changes the trajectory of lives that's where the small and the weak and the lowly and the meek are and we're going to use the other part of it to help plant a church where there are small and weak and lowly and meek it is not a good strategic idea but it's where Jesus is right? so if we're doing this as a church don't you want to do it in your own life? Don't you want to say, God, help me to start looking for you in the small and the weak and the lowly and the meek. Instead of make my life great, do whatever you have to, but get it to great. What if Jesus is in a different place? Let's not miss him. Let me pray for you. God, I'm asking for each of us where I just confess on behalf of everyone. Lord, I know that I often seek things even that seem small and weak and lowly and meek so that I can get to great and wonderful. So God, I'm praying for me that you'll help me to want to find those things where you are. I pray you'd change my disposition that I'd want that instead of the applause, the affirmation, and the big life that others would notice. God, in the same way, I pray that on behalf of all of us. Lord, that maybe we would start looking for you in places we've not looked, and stop looking in the things you can give us. God, I'm asking for that gift, not just at Christmas, but moving ahead. Lead us to that end, Lord, in your name. Amen.